you looking through uh, chapters 19 and 20 of John's Gospel uh, in this uh, short series that will end next week. Uh, We're on page 1089, 1089, as we look at this passage together. John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31, page 1089. If I saw Jesus, then I'd believe. That's what my uh, friend Steve said as I spoke to him about Christian things. Uh, We used to work together in the newspaper business, and as well as being colleagues, we became very good friends. In fact, I was his best man. We often chatted about all sorts of things in our lunchtimes and more often than not the conversations turned to Christian things because he knew what I believed. That was after one of those particularly long and involved debates that Steve and I used to have that Steve said those words to me. He said, I need hard evidence, proof of all you're saying. If I saw Jesus, then I'd believe. Well, that was my friend Steve and that's Thomas for you. Do you see it there in John chapter 20, verse 25? The other disciples told Thomas, we've seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. See what Thomas is saying? Unless I can see the body that I had seen dead on the cross, I am never going to believe what you tell me. Thomas wanted proof that Jesus had risen from the dead. If Thomas were English, then I'm pretty sure he'd be a Yorkshireman. He he wanted hard facts. None of you airy-fairy religious nonsense. Thomas wants tangible evidence. And in many ways, I'm grateful to Thomas for saying what he said. I'm not going to justify his attitude this evening, because as we'll see later, Jesus gently rebukes him. Nevertheless, Thomas being here in the Bible is very helpful for us. Thomas, you see, destroys the myth, the common myth, that Jesus' resurrection was the wishful thinking of a group of desperate and gullible people. That Jesus' death had reduced the disciples to a bunch of hopeless and desperate people who would believe anything that was suggested to them. Thomas blows all that nonsense out of the water. But of course, such people do exist. And not least of all, in the church. Intelligent people seem to lay aside their critical faculties when it comes to religious things. Have you noticed that? So every few years you'll hear a report that a statue of the Virgin Mary somewhere in the world has been seen to miraculously move or or shed a tear and people flock to, to, to the site to worship. Others too easily get led astray by a magnetic personality in leadership and often with tragic consequences. Just think of all those who were devotees of David Koresh in Waco, Texas, following him to their death on the 28th of February 1993. And today, barely a week goes by without a suicide bomber blowing himself up somewhere in the world. Do you not wish that there were more Thomases around? so that these people were not so easily persuaded by charismatic leaders? See, Thomas wanted facts. He wanted empirical evidence. And you may be saying, yeah, that's just where I'm at on this. I want evidence before I'm going to believe anything. Well, if that's you this evening, you've chosen a very good evening to come to church as we look at Thomas and as we consider what the Bible demands of us when it comes to believing. We begin, though, just a few verses back, back in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. What a great place to start when we're thinking about this whole thing of 
what sort of evidence we need. It is clear in verse 19 that the disciples did see Jesus. It's actually what the whole chapter is about. They saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead. He was dead. They saw him alive. But crucially, they certainly were not expecting it. It was the uh, Sunday after Jesus had been executed on the Friday, as we read verse 19. Uh, The day started early in the morning. Chapter 20, verse 1, with Mary setting out to visit the tomb to anoint, as she thought, the dead body of Jesus. So Mary was not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. And the disciples weren't either. When Jesus was arrested, do you remember, taken to that kangaroo court and then executed, the disciples scarpered. They thought it was the end of their great adventure with Jesus Christ. But now, well now, astonishingly, they were beginning to see that Jesus' death was not the end. John and Peter had seen the almost empty tomb. We saw that last week. In verse 8, John saw and believed. That is, he saw the, the shape of the folded grave clothes in the tomb and he understood from those grave clothes that Jesus must have risen from the dead right through the grave clothes. And Mary? Well, Mary saw even more. She met Jesus. So, verse 18, she told the disciples that she'd seen the Lord alive and this was no hallucination. End of verse 18, he'd even spoken to her. And so, at the end of that momentous day, verse 19 the disciples had got together, excited about all that had happened, yet fearful too. Did you notice it, verse 19? They kept the doors locked for fear of the Jews. See, it was the Jewish leadership that had plotted Jesus' downfall. And if they framed and nailed Jesus, it was very reasonable to think that they would be after the disciples next. And let's face it, when you have the highest officials in the land after you, you fear that you can run but you cannot hide. No wonder they had the doors locked. But while the locked doors served as a barrier to the Jews, be sure they were no barrier to the risen Jesus. 4 verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then we read verse 20, After he'd said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Well, of course they were overjoyed. Just think back 18 months or so to some, well, 16 months, to some of the images from that Boxing Day tsunami. There were so many images. Can you remember the pictures of elation when people were reunited with loved ones? Loved ones they feared had died in the tragedy. Well, Jesus had died on the cross and yet here they were reunited with him. No wonder they were overjoyed. And make no mistake, this was the same Jesus who died on the cross. Verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. And John goes out of his way to prove to us this was... Some people say that Jesus uh, didn't actually die on the cross or, or that it was someone else who appeared. He showed them his hands in his side. The scars that had meant that he'd been crucified. Jesus had risen from the dead. They'd seen him die and now he was alive. And that is why he greeted them as he did. Verse 19, peace be with you. It was the conventional greeting of the day, but be sure, this was more than Jesus just passing the time of day with the disciples because he does the same thing in verse 21 so that they didn't miss it. Did you see it? Verse 21, again Jesus said, peace be with you. So he says it at the end of verse 19, he says it at the beginning of verse 21 and notice what comes in the middle. 
What stands in the middle of those two greetings, peace be with you, verse 20, he showed them his hands in his side, the scars of crucifixion. Scars are fascinating things, aren't they? Every scar tells a story. Now you ask each other about your scars afterwards. You've got nothing else to talk about. It's a bit sick, but it's quite fun as well. Uh, you know, I, I've, got a, I've got a scar up here. I've got another scar on my knee. I could, I could have great fun telling you about my scars. Well, I'm not going to bore you with that. A friend of mine has a huge scar on the side of his head. He, he's not one to talk about it, but I heard the story once of how he got it. He'd been knocked off his bike as an eight-year-old. And uh, uh, he told how after considerable work on him in the casualty department, he was, he was pronounced dead. And then how amazingly one doctor went back to him a few moments later and continued to work on him and, and saved his life, brought him back to life. It is a remarkable story of a life being saved. And the scar tells the story. The scars of Jesus tell an even more astonishing story of one who died to save others. They are the scars that speak of sacrifice. See, as we've been thinking over these last weeks, Jesus' death achieved something. Do you remember chapter 19, verse 30? As he died, he said, it is finished. The job was completed. Not I am finished, but it is finished. I've I've completed the task I've come for. Jesus' death achieved something amazing. And that is the point of Jesus' greeting. End of verse 19, Jesus said, peace be with you. Verse 21, Jesus said, peace be with you. And in the middle, verse 20, Jesus showed them his hands in his side. Jesus' death brought peace with God. About nine years ago uh, now, the the telephone rang at about three o'clock in the morning. It was the local hospital asking me to visit a man who was very poorly and had been asking to speak to a minister. I'd never met this man before and I discovered when I went there he wasn't a churchgoer but he he knew he was seriously ill and and he was obviously troubled. There there were things on his mind. I don't know exactly what was going through his mind. I can imagine that he was going back through his life as he was coming to the end of his. I I asked him how I could help him and and his eyes welled up with tears. And uh, as he didn't seem to know what to say I asked him if he was ready to meet his maker. And he said he wasn't sure. And so I said to him, do you want to make your peace with God? And he said, yes, I do. And so in the dead of night, in a quiet hospital ward, with everyone else around uh, sleeping, I explained to him that although we reject God all our lives, and although we deserve to be punished by God, that Jesus took that punishment on the cross for us so that we could be at peace with God. And I talked to him about the fact that even at the end of his life he could ask Jesus to forgive him and start again with Jesus and be at peace with God. And I prayed a simple prayer with that dear man and he prayed along with me and when I called back the next morning I was told that he died in the night. The nurse told me that he'd gone to sleep after I'd left and died, her words, peacefully in his sleep. See, he was at peace with God. He was troubled. He met the Lord Jesus. He understood the cross. Peace with, isn't that something? Peace with God. That's what Jesus' death achieved and his resurrection was the guarantee of that. And now that peace with God is on offer, Jesus wanted his disciples to tell that wonderful good news to the world. Look at verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. 
And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. See, he's saying, go and tell people. Go and tell people that they can be forgiven. And go, verse 22, in the power of the Holy Spirit. I will help you do it. It is a remarkable moment. Here they were, huddled in a room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. And Jesus sent them into the world. That was the last thing that these disciples wanted to do. They were fearful. But they had a mission to tell people about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you think they'd have gone into the world and told people that Jesus was risen if he hadn't appeared to them? Of course they wouldn't. They feared for their lives. They had good reason to. When they did go, as we read in the next book of the Bible, in the book of Acts, many of them lost their lives for telling this fact. But they went because Jesus appeared to them and sent them. That was their mission. But in case they were tempted to think, as Jesus said here, go and tell people this wonderful news, in case they were tempted to think that everyone they met would instantly accept everything they said, enter Thomas. Verse 24. Now Thomas, called Didymus, the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And in that way, Thomas is in exactly our situation. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Ever been in the wrong place at the wrong time? I have on several occasions. I won't bore you with the stories. I'm sure you've been in the wrong... Maybe some of you are feeling you're in the wrong place at the wrong time now. When is he going to shut up? Well, you know, you may know that feeling of being in the wrong place. Well, we are. We are. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, we are in the wrong place at the wrong time. We are in Sheffield, the wrong place, not in Jerusalem, and we're born 2,000 years too late, the wrong time. Wrong place, wrong time to see the resurrection of Jesus. That's Thomas. Wrong place, wrong time. See, the other disciples had seen Jesus. Verse 25, the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. I will not believe it. Thomas wanted to see and to touch Jesus. And why shouldn't he, honestly? Honestly, why should he not ask for that? Everyone else in chapter 20 saw him. Peter and John in verses 1 to 8 saw the grave clothes. Mary in verses 10 to 18 saw some angels and then Jesus. And as we've seen in verse 19, all the disciples saw Jesus. Why should Jesus not get a look in? Uh, Thomas not get a look in? We may have real sympathy with Thomas. I'll believe if I can see and touch Jesus. But let's stop here just for a moment. This is the key moment. Just imagine if everyone adopted Thomas's position. Just imagine everyone took that, that line, I'll only believe if I can see and touch Jesus, or see Jesus. Within a generation, there would be no Christianity. Within a generation, there would be no believers at all. Now, Christianity, you see, is based on historical events. It's based on the person of Jesus, who lived and died and rose again, and then ascended into heaven. Historical events. See, five weeks after what we're reading here, Jesus would no longer be on earth. Jesus is not around today for us to see him. I cannot show you the risen Jesus this evening. So if we all take Thomas's line, there will be no Christians within a generation of this. 
And at this point, some of you will be thinking, yeah, I know where this goes. This is the point where he tells me I've just got to have faith. No, I'm not. That is the last thing I'm going to tell you this evening. Let's go back to Thomas. You see, the problem with Thomas was not that he wanted evidence. That's actually a very good thing to ask for. The problem with Thomas is he wouldn't believe the evidence that he had been given of the eyewitnesses. Remember verse 25? The other disciples said, we have seen the Lord. There's your evidence. Eyewitness accounts. We have seen the Lord. And Thomas said, unless I see, end of verse 25, I will not believe. We often talk of doubting Thomas. The end of verse 25 makes it plain he was unbelieving Thomas. And what was it he refused to believe? He refused to believe the testimony of the other disciples, the apostles, the eyewitnesses. See, look on at verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Verse 26 is a carbon copy of the events of one week earlier when Thomas wasn't there. The disciples are together, the doors are locked, Jesus came and stood among them and he said exactly the same thing, peace be with you. It is identical. This is the crucial thing. It is exactly as the disciples had had explained it to Thomas. Why? To prove to Thomas that the disciples were reliable witnesses. And then, verse 27, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Or it could be translated, do not be unbelieving, but believing. This is where Thomas is different to you and me. Thomas did get to see Jesus. He could have even touched the scars if he'd wanted to. But you see at the end, Jesus rebuked him because Thomas should have believed the testimony of the apostles. When they said, we've seen the Lord, he should have said, I know these men. I know them. I know they can be trusted. And you see, that is the issue for you and me. 2,000 years on. Now, we can't see Jesus. We're in the wrong place at the wrong time. But here's the question. Can we rely on the evidence of the eyewitnesses? That's the question. Verse 29. Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. See, at this point, in verse 29, Jesus looks through history and says to Thomas, there will be many down through the centuries who won't see me, but who will believe. People who will believe the testimony of the apostles. And please note what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not asking for faith without evidence. Jesus is asking for faith without sight. Two totally different things. Question, how am I to believe in Jesus and his resurrection if I have not seen it for myself? Answer, believe the testimony of the apostles. Verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but, says John, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you see what John is saying at the end of this uh, resurrection site account? John says, I have written down what I saw so that you can believe. 
Now again, please, this is not a request for blind faith. I am amazed the amount of times I've heard people ask Christians a question and the Christian has responded like this. Ah, that's just where you've got to have faith. So someone asks a perfectly reasonable question like, how do you know God exists? A great question, a really reasonable question and the Christian replies, that's just where you've got to have faith. That is a hopeless answer. Christian, please never say that ever again. That is not biblical faith. That is Alice in Wonderland faith. And I know a lot about Alice in Wonderland. Here's the video. Being the proud father of twin five-and-a-half-year-old girls, I have seen this video more than I care to. It runs, <laughs> it runs for 72 minutes in glorious Technicolor, and every minute seems to take longer every time I look at it with my girls. I've seen this a lot of times. It's the Disney portrayal of Alice through the looking glass. Alice says to the Queen of Hearts, but I can't believe that. Can't you? The Queen said in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. But there's no point trying, she said. One cannot believe impossible things. Well, I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the Queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour every day. Why, sometimes I believe six impossible things before breakfast. I've heard it a lot. You see, when I speak of the certainty that God exists and the guarantee of life beyond the grave, people sometimes say to me, I wish I had your faith. As if, like the Queen of Hearts, I've worked hard at at whipping up my faith from inside me, as if I've closed my eyes and, and tried harder to believe. Maybe believe six impossible things before breakfast, that somewhere deep down I've had a little spark of faith inside me that has allowed me to believe impossible things, but of course they could never do that. That's not it at all. Christian faith is not about suspending your critical faculties, believing impossible things. That's not it at all. No, it's looking at the evidence. The evidence of the eyewitnesses. Christianity is an historical faith with historical events. You can't have it both ways. You can't have historical events and have them happening all the time. What what, what do you want? Historical events. Then you have to use the same approach that you would look for any historical event. They are events you can check out. And then, if if they stand up, faith is trusting them. Trusting the evidence. That's what Thomas would not do. That's why Jesus rebuked him. Stop doubting and believe. Stop being unbelieving and become believing. And that is why John has written his gospel. So John says, look at the miracles. That's what he says in verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded. He says, I could have recorded loads of other things, but I've just got a selected few here. Verse 31, but these are written that you may believe. John says, look at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead the way I've recorded it here. It is an historically verifiable act. Yes, it's supernatural, but that does not mean it's not historical. And John invites us to look at all the other miracles of Jesus so that we'll know who he is. See, John says in verse 31, if you read my gospel, you'll see all the things that Jesus did. You'll see Jesus turned plain water into vintage clarets. 
You'll see him heal a dying little boy and make a paralysed man walk and give sight to a blind man. You'll see him take a little boy's packed lunch of bread and fish and make it a banquet for more than 5,000 people. You'll even see him resuscitate Lazarus, a man who'd been in a tomb for four days, his flesh already rotting, he had been dead so long, and yet he brings him back to life. And of course you'll see the account of Jesus' own resurrection. John wrote these things down so that we'd know who we were dealing with here. Verse 31, look at the miracles of Jesus, says John. And that is when sometimes people say to me, all these miracles, that's exactly why I can't believe. I can't believe the miracles. And I say to them, well, what would you expect if God were to come down from heaven and walk on this planet? What would you expect? Indeed, if someone were to walk in now and come and stand at that microphone and say, I'm God, I would say to them, prove it. Wouldn't you say that? The miracles are not the reason not to believe, but quite the opposite. They are exactly the reason to believe. If he really is the Christ, if he really is God's king in God's world, then do you not expect him to do miraculous things? And if he can't do them, do you not say, you're not the real deal? And that is why John wrote them down for us, because we're in the wrong place at the wrong time, but we can still believe them, because he's seen them and he's reliable. So we can read this historically reliable account written by an honest, reliable witness so that we can know what really happened, so that we can believe. And why does all this matter? Why are we even getting passionate about it? Verse 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and listen to this, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Eternal life, there is a lot at stake here. Sin forgiven, peace with God. That's what Christians are about. Not just making the world a nicer place, being kind to one another. That's, I mean, that's going to be part, that's not the main thing. Christians are about telling you how to get life beyond the grave. And if you're tempted to think that doesn't matter, as, so, as someone who's conducted the funerals of many people, please believe me, it really does matter. We are all going to face God one day. We are all going to die and face Almighty God. There is nothing more important than knowing that I am at peace with God. And John says, I've written this book so that you can know that for yourself. So let me ask you this evening, have you ever read John's Gospel? It will only take a couple of hours if you read it carefully. It will only take you a couple of hours and it will point you towards eternity. Now, by anyone's calculation, that is a great return on such a small investment. A couple of hours reading, eternity. It's worth it, isn't it? Worth looking into. You haven't lost much, two hours. Here, are, here is John's Gospel. I've got a number of these. I would love to give you one as you leave. Have a read for yourself. See if you think it squares up. I can't show you the risen Jesus Christ standing before you, but read this book and you will have very compelling grounds for believing the resurrection. And here you'll have evidence that you can turn to and read at three o'clock in the morning, if you want to. When you're waking, waking up in the middle of the night, wondering if it's really all true. Go back to this. See, biblical faith is based on facts, solid eyewitness accounts. But as we close, biblical faith is not merely intellectual assent either. 
See, as we close, just look back to these words of Thomas in verse 28. Thomas said to Jesus, having seen him stand before him, Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Faith has solid convictions. If we are to call ourselves Christian, we have to be able to say of Jesus that he is Lord. That is that he rules the whole universe. There is no one as big as him or as important as him. If we are to call ourselves Christian, we have to be able to say that he is God. That he created the whole universe. That there are no other gods apart from him. That God came and lived among us. You cannot be Christian without those convictions. And you cannot be Christian without personal commitment. Verse 28, Thomas owned him as my Lord and my God. Do you see, it's personal. It's about personally trusting what Jesus has done. Can you say of Jesus, my Lord and my God? And if you can't, then reading this book will help you to see why it is perfectly reasonable to do so. Let's pray together. Now, Father, as we look at uh, Thomas, unbelieving Thomas, in one sense we're grateful to you for him. Uh, we know, Lord, that he should have believed the, uh, the apostles, and yet we thank you that here is the Bible in all its honesty, telling us what really happened, uh, because many of us can connect with Thomas. And so we pray you'd help us to understand that the Apostles who saw are reliable. And in our times of uh, questioning and uncertainty and, and doubting and unbelieving, that we would then be able to remember again that we can read John's Gospel and indeed the whole Bible and be convinced again that these things are true. That we're not just welling up inside of us some ridiculous notion of faith, of something that doesn't really happen, but we kind of make it happen. Help us, Lord, to, to grasp biblical faith based on the facts written in the Scriptures. And then as we believe those things, we thank you that you give us life, eternal life, in Jesus' name. Amen.